Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. I'm the pastor here at Red Door, and we're in a phenomenal series called Sent, as we're reading and journeying through the book of Acts. And today's passage is going to be particularly interesting, and so I'm really excited to dive into it, um, because from the outset, it probably doesn't look that interesting, but I'm going to say more about that in a moment. Before we dive into the Word, we've prayed a lot, we've said a lot, but I'm going to pray again, and once again, so that the Holy Spirit uh, prepares our hearts. So let's pray together. Father God, we pray this morning that through your Holy Spirit, we would be able not only to hear your Word and hear the truth, but hear it with unveiled eyes and ears that can hear. Help us that we may respond with hearts that are softened and willing to follow you. We know that you have the words of life. We know that you have eternal life within you, yet we are often distracted as we look at our problems, the temptations around us, and even just the dreariness of everyday life. May we be refreshed this morning. May we see the light of the gospel and may we go out of here joyous and cheerful serving you. Amen. Friends, how do you respond to a crisis situation? What is your normal go-to thing? What do you do when you're under pressure? I'm not talking about your normal small-time crises. I'm talking about not when you run out of airtime or when you've got a bad hair day, or when you forgot to study about for a test. I'm talking about a real traumatic situation. You get devastating news about your health. Maybe you get the news that someone you loved has passed away. You lost someone. You've lost your job. You've lost the means to provide for your family and income. These are big, serious, traumatic situations that shakes our world. I don't know a lot about you, but I thought a lot about how I would want to react. I kind of play the scenarios in my mind, and I think, well, this, this is the things that I want to do and want to say. The problem is um, we're not entirely sure how we would react in those situations. Uh, typically what happens, and this is psychologically speaking, when a traumatic crisis hits, we go to our default settings. We do and we go to the things that we really value and that gives our lives meaning. And so practically, if you're anything like me, I still want to somehow prepare for those inevitable crises that will hit my life. And so there's some things that I want to do daily that can help me prepare for that. And so what they say you should do and need to do is you need to develop good habits about reminding yourself and asking yourselves what are the things that you constantly value and why do you value those things? Because if you get into that mindset, the things that you value becomes habits and your habits becomes the pattern of your life. And so when devastation or crisis hits, you know as you restore or you go back to your factory defaults, those are the things that you're going to turn to. And so there's smaller ways in which we can kind of practice these things daily, these disciplines, these habits. Uh, For the Christian, we call these, well that's an effect, For the Christians, we call these spiritual disciplines. It's good habits that we do daily to continually remind us of what is important in our lives and for the Christian life. And in today's passage, we're going to see a lot of this in action. 
we're going to see the disciples in a crisis situation and how they encounter adversity and what were the ways that they responded to adversity. What were some of the good habits, some of the good spiritual disciplines that they applied to their situation to not only survive the situation but actually navigate it and to be able to interact with the situation that they were facing in their lives. Contrary to popular belief, the apostles of Jesus were normal people. They were people also filled with fear and doubt and anxieties. And so it's really interesting for us as we can today look at the way that they reacted to take some of those lessons for us today. Before we get into the passage, uh, an interesting side note as we talk about today's passage is, I don't know if you guys have ever had this, probably not because you're a lot more godly than I am, but as you read the Bible, and especially stories, you get something called filler texts. It feels like this is part of the story, but it's actually just getting you from one scene to another scene. And we're just waiting for the next big event to happen in Acts. We know Acts is full of fireworks, and so today kind of feels like, is that part that you maybe skip in your Bible study, or you read very quickly in your Bible study when they give all the names and the genealogies? It's like one of those texts in the Bible. And so I was wrestling even with this this week. It's like, man, how do you preach a text like this? However, this morning is a great opportunity to explain our view here at Red Door and how we view the Bible and also how we view then our preaching. And our preaching should be a model for how we want everyone that's part of Red Door to actually read and interpret their Bibles. And so there are two things. Two things that I want us to understand for the way that we view Scripture. One, we believe in something called expositional preaching. And we believe in something called gospel-centered preaching. And so expositional preaching means that we believe that God gave his word for us, but he first gave it to an original audience. And so if we want to understand what something means for us, we first need to understand what did it mean for them first. That's why in every sermon always you'll hear us talk about context. Context, context, context. What was the situation in which this was playing around? The other thing that it really helps us and that should help us uh, in the way that we read our Bible is that it influences the way that we read it. We read it just like any other book. If you were to read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, you don't just start in the middle and pick and choose a chapter. No. To understand the whole series or to understand the whole book, you should start at the beginning and read until the end. And so when we read a book in the Bible or when we preach through a book in the Bible, we start at the beginning and we go to the end. One, because we believe that's the way that God gave it to us, but also we actually think that when we get the whole picture of a book, it actually helps us in our understanding and interpreting of the Bible. That's expositional preaching. Secondly, we also hold firm to gospel-centered reading and preaching of the Bible. This means that we believe the whole Bible forms part of one story, and God is the author of that story, and Jesus is the main character of that story, and his death and resurrection is the main event of that story. And so because it's one single story, we do believe in one single author that God used many different human authors. We actually believe that the whole Bible points to this one event. And so in the New Testament, we're constantly looking back at the cross. And in the Old Testament, we're constantly looking forward to the cross of Christ. And so as the saying goes, all roads re lead to Rome. Similarly, we do believe that every passage in the Bible links up with the gospel of Christ. 
And so every time we read a passage, even though it's super obscure, I'm not saying that I understand every passage, but I do believe that every passage maybe whispers or points or creates a longing for the cross of Christ. That's how we preach, and that's how we should read our Bible. Okay, now for today's text. Let's get some context for today's text so we can understand what's happening here together. I hope that together with me you'll be amazed at today's passage, even this obscure passage, how every part of Scripture is God's Word and it is alive. And so to fully feel the force of today's passage, we need to remind ourselves what is the state of mind that the disciples are in right now. What are some of the stuff that they just went through um, that took them to the place where they are right now? Remember that their master Jesus, the one that they followed, that they looked to for answers, he was handed over in a short amount of time. They, he was handed over to die. They were all betrayed, and not by an outsider, but by one of their own brothers. One of them who journeyed with them every single day for three years. Judas ate with them, slept together under the stars with them, laughed with them, listened to Jesus with them, experienced the miracles that Jesus was performing with them. Not some stranger, some guy outside of the circle, but this guy is the one who betrayed not only Christ, but all of them as well. After that betrayal, their master was tortured, crucified, and died. And they were in utter despair. And then suddenly there were rumors. Some of the women said, no, he was risen. Other people said, no, his body was stolen. And they were in this place of turmoil only to actually see the resurrected Christ. And then he went away again. He ascended. Even though they knew that this was good for them, their master left them again. The one who had all the answers, the one who comforted them, the one who was speaking into every situation on their behalf, was away again. So this is still before Pentecost, before they've received the other comforter, the Holy Spirit. And it's in this space that we pick up today's story. I hope you feel the mood that the guys must have been in. And so we have to ask ourselves, what was the things that was going through their minds? How were they going to respond to this adversity, to this crisis situation that they were kind of just toppled in how were they going to think about the mere fact that not only did Judas betray him betray them but that he also died and they actually lost a friend and so the way that they dealt with uncertainty trauma and calamity and experiencing a crisis should be very insightful for us today even as we navigating our lives and even as the way that you have so many landmines that are lying in before you for this time We wanted to see the way in which they godly reacted. And so three things I want us to see today. Three things that I want us to notice how they encountered adversity. One, I want us to see their reaction. Then I want us to see their response. And ultimately, I want us to see their resolve as the apostles of Christ. So as all of this hit them and Jesus ascended into heaven, it's very interesting to read their initial reaction. And for that, read with me verses 12 to 14 that we can see what was their reaction like. Jesus just ascended into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, 
which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. It's about a kilometer. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were, where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And so as they were toppled into this crisis, they reacted first and foremost by being obedient to Jesus' words. Jesus said, you guys need to go to Jerusalem and from there you'll receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't know about you, but it's interesting, that's not necessarily the first place that I go to when something hits me and to ask, how can I be obedient to God in this situation? In fact, my emotions run away with me. And so it's interesting that when we are in times of uncertainty, we always need to ask ourselves, what should we do? But the answer can never be contradictory to God's word. However we should react in any situation, it will always be in obedience to what God has called us to do. No situation ever will require us to move away from the simple truth of obedience. No other revelation, nothing will contradict God's word. And so when they got to Jerusalem, there was no further instructions. That was the only instructions. Go to Jerusalem and wait. But it's interesting, what was the way, what did they do when they got to Jerusalem? They could have done what they wanted. Go to their houses, play a little bit of FIFA, just wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. But we see, what did they do? They were of one accord, gathering together and devoting themselves to prayer. They drew closer to community and they prayed with one another. I do not think that this is a natural reaction. Some cultures, this is more natural than others to draw into community when crisis hits. However, in city culture, I don't think this is natural. We perennially love our privacy and we isolate ourselves, especially when we're not doing good emotionally. We definitely don't draw closer to community. We definitely don't want to be surrounded by more brothers and sisters around us when we're in crisis. And the question is why? I think there's many answers, and I don't have all the answers right now, but there's definitely one thing that we do believe somehow in city cultures, that we believe that in the community we have some sort of image that we want to protect. And we believe that once I draw into the community when I'm not at my best, when I can't put my best foot forward, then I'm going to somehow damage that image that the people have of me. And so I stay away until I can sort myself out. We use the excuse, I don't want to be a burden to people. It's more about our image than it is about us burdening other people. Once I've sorted myself out, I'll come and present myself good to the community again. This was not the reaction of the disciples. They did not say, I will pray for you, brother. They prayed with one another. They drew in closer to one another. They're like, man, we're not sure what's going on. We kind of know that God is in control. But collectively, we want to call out to God. We don't gather and pull into community because we think that the community or the individuals has all the answers. No, we just know that collectively we can carry the burden. Collectively we can cry out to God. 
So their reaction was not to isolate, but to gather and to gather in prayer. Family, we need to see this and we need to learn from this. When a brother comes to us, and this is practically, is the, is the ones that should pull people in and should counsel people who are experiencing trauma and crisis. One of the ways that we can make it easier for people to actually open up is that we shouldn't be a community that's solutionist-driven. This is what I mean. We somehow think that the way that we should comfort one another is to have the answer for that situation. Am I right? We're so afraid to listen to someone's problems because it's like, man, I don't know what to say to this person. I don't know how to answer them. Yet this is not what we're called to do. The supporting is not in the answer, but it's more in the collective cry out to God. With you, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I can pray with you. I can call out to God with you. I can just sit in this moment with you rather than just throwing a Bible verse at you and saying everything's going to be all right. God works everything together for those who love him. He does, but it's not so good to hear that in that moment. You just want someone, need someone to sit with you in the situation. As we do this, we're going to encourage one another and we're going to create an environment where it's actually safe to be open with our problems, where we can share these things with one another. We listen, we pray, we gather, we are. And what's interesting to note here, as they were gathering together, it didn't say that just the 11 apostles gathered. No, it was the apostles, the disciples, and the woman, and the mother, Mary, and the brothers of Jesus. And we, we have to read this with the kind of paternalistic eyes that was written in those days. The fact that the women were mentioned in this passage was a big deal for back then. And so Jesus kind of started uh, 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 diverting the trend from back then that women didn't have a say in ministry. And so we can see this already continuing in Acts where women are being included not just in the conversation but in the ministry. It was a change that was happening. It was rectifying the role that women were playing in the kingdom of God. And so what this means for us is that, ladies, you have a voice and a responsibility to use your voice for God's glory. We need women that are able to have opportunities to preach and teach the gospel. And so we hope to be a community at Red Door that not only celebrates this, the inclusivity of women in the ministry of God, but actually creates different platforms for the women in our midst to teach and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that was their initial reaction. Suddenly it's this mixed group of people gathering together, praying together, and then as they were supporting one another, they also responded to the situation. Read with me their response from verses 15 to 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of, da by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, 
and let there no one and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office and so they needed to make sense of the situation to understand why this happened and remember it's not just regarding the uncertainty of Jesus and the promise of the holy spirit but the trauma that they experienced but one of their brothers that betrayed them how could it be that it, one of their own was capable of this? How can they make sense of the situation? If it was some outsider, it would have been easier to accept and to deal with. But when it's within your own camp, the hurt and the trauma is just so much greater. And so how did they respond? Well, they turned to Scripture. Peter spoke God's word. By using God's word as the lens through which they view the world in order to make sense of the world, they were able to make sense of their situation. So we read that Peter stood up and addressed all the disciples that were about 120 and the 11 and the women and many other faithful followers of Christ, all shaken by this event. And he said, brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And so two things we need to notice in this. The first is that what happened was not by accident but by design. It was part of God's sovereign plan and fulfilled that which was spoken beforehand by the mouth of David. So this must have been some sort of encouragement for the disciples to hear and again understand that nothing is outside of the control of God. Not Judas's failings, not the betrayal of Peter who is speaking here, and not even Jesus' death, crucifixion, and resurrection. Even today, as we are confronted with many traumatic events, we need to be comforted with the knowledge that God is still in control. Consider what deep despair we would feel if we were hit by a tra tragedy and this was not true. One of the most prevalent emotions that one feels when hit with tragedy is the immense feeling of loss of control. Suddenly, we thought we were in control of our lives and we realize how fragile, how fickle life is. In an instant, everything can change. What our hearts need to hear is that even though we are not in control, we serve a God that is in control, that is not surprised by anything, and he is a good God in whom we can place our trust. But of course then, as we understand God's sovereign will, we've got to ask the question immediately then, so why does bad things then still happen? If God is sovereign and in control, was he the one to cause this? Was he the author of evil? And the answer obviously has to be no. God is holy. God cannot cause evil and he cannot cause someone to sin. But verse 18 interprets Judas' actions. No, this man acquired a field with his wickedness. It is not the prophetic fulfillment or God's sovereign will that caused Judas to sin. Rather, it was by his own wickedness of his own heart. There's a cat called John Calvin. He's, he's like one of the big names in the Reformation. And this guy really believes in the sovereign will of God. But even he said the following, Judas may not be excused on the ground that what befell him was prophesied. 
since he fell away not through the compulsion of the prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. What this means for us today is that we see an interplay between God's sovereign will and our own hearts, coexisting together. And specifically, what it means for us as a church is that we need to make sure daily that we hold fast to the gospel, lest through the wickedness of our own hearts we fall away from Christ. God's will will reign supreme, and no matter what happens, he will use it for his glory, yet we know and understand that we cannot become complacent. Judas was with Jesus when he fell away. Do you attend church? Do you try and live a sanctified life? Are you even a leader in the church? That's great. However, your position and attendance does not guarantee your salvation. It is only those who cling to Christ who will be saved. Brothers and sisters, this should not create worry in our hearts or doubt whether we are really saved or not. What it should do is create a seriousness about our salvation a seriousness about our relationship with God. Are you clinging to Christ? I'm sure the disciples were wondering this as well because they too deserted Jesus. All of them ran away. But even though, or what's the difference between Judas and the rest of the disciples? Is that even though the disciples sinned, after they sinned, they looked to Christ for their salvation. And Judas' savior was revealed in the money that he received. Verse 19 says that the field that was bought with Judas's money was called a kaldama, that is, field of blood. Yes, because Judas died there in a very gory way, but also, actually, because it was bought with blood money, money that was obtained through another man's death. So Judas was serving his God money. And it's interesting, in serving that God, it led to the death of Jesus and ultimately led to his own death and demise as well. And friends, this is a clear picture of what false idols does. They promise a lot, but in the process of trying to get what they promise, it causes so much pain and hurt around us. Haven't we seen this in corruption? Haven't we experienced this as people try and climb the corporate ladder stepping on other people's heads, trying to achieve the goal? Haven't we experienced this in our own homes when we experience a family member that neglects or steps away from the family because they're achieving or looking for something else? In fact, haven't we all done this before? We all deserve to be treated like Judas to experience death and separation from God. We deserve to be cursed. However, it's, it's here where we see the beauty of Jesus shine. Jesus is the antitype in Judas' story. Judas's idolatry led to destruction. Jesus' obedience led to salvation. Jesus, instead of trying to receive money, causing blood to flow, let his own blood flow so that he could buy us into his family. Judas's blood money came back to haunt him. Jesus bought us with his blood and in so doing, so doing giving us peace. Hold on to the one who gave himself for you and not to the false promises of those things asking you to give yourself for it. 
Lastly, we see not only their reaction, not only the way that they responded in drawing closer into Scripture and understanding their life and their world through Scripture, but we see a resolve in amongst the disciples. Read with me verses 21 to 26. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, and also called, who was also called Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this, in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell in Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So it's very interesting. Right off the bat, we need to see that the failure of Judas is not the failure of the mission of God. We know and assume that right now, but the disciples had to go through the process of understanding this. We see that they did in fact understand this because they went on to replace Judas and to continue the apostolic ministry that Jesus gave the disciples whom he had chosen. They had a resolve, a steadfastness, steadfastness, a commitment to do the mission that Jesus had given and entrusted to them. Now the apost uh, uh, what do you call it? Apost apostolic, that's the right word. The apostolic ministry is quite a unique ministry. We see that there were certain criteria to be an apostle. Uh, you needed to have been with Jesus and with the other disciples since the day of Jesus' baptism right until his crucifixion. We also see that you needed to have been chosen by Jesus himself. And so even today, we hear of many people claiming to be apostles. It could be so, but you needed to fulfill the criteria as well. And so the apostles were unique because it was a temporary ministry given to these disciples to kickstart the mission in the church of Christ. We see that many signs were performed by the apostles, um, and this was so that there was further proof that Jesus had in fact been risen and that he had chosen these men on which he was going to build his church. And so one of these needed to be replaced. We see that they were very specific about the criteria of whom would carry forward this office. And even then, they could not decide between the final two who was going to be the apostle. They cast lots to see whom God had chosen, which was a practice in the Old Testament. Again, this doesn't mean that we cast lots every time we can't decide on everything, but it was rather to highlight the uniqueness of this ministry. Jesus had to be the one at the end of the day to finally choose his apostles. And so once every criteria was met, to finally decide who was going to be the, the apostle, they threw lots. And did you notice the words? For the one whom Jesus had chosen. And so even though this process was very unique to the apostles, uh, there is a lot that we can learn from this. We see that the message of the gospel is precious. And those who step into leadership in gospel ministry should feel the weight of this. There should be a criteria for those who lead, and it should be more than just knowledge of the Bible. We see that they, those who lead needs to have a track record of faithfulness in order to step into this ministry. And this shows us that 
Jesus is still in control even when it feels like things do fall apart. It shows us this passage that yes, we've got high criteria for the leaders and for the people in positions, but ultimately we should not put our trust in the pastors or the leaders of the church, but rather in the ultimate leader of the church, which is Christ. Everyone should be held accountable to Jesus. Even the pastor, actually, especially the pastor, especially those in leadership, because the gospel message is so precious, it means that they are held to a higher standard. Friends, notice this. Yes, we are saved by grace and grace freely given, but this isn't cheap grace. We saw it in the previous part that this is grace paid for in blood. And so we want to be serious in the way that we approach this. And so in closing, fam, we, as we grow in our faith and in our sanctification, we will encounter many different letdowns or setbacks or crises or traumas or calamity, maybe in our midst or even outside our midst in the way that we encounter that. We need to be a community that continually practices the spiritual disciplines that we hold dear, understanding that we were bought with a price. Understanding that we were saved by grace and we need daily reminders from this. So we need to react as a community that continually draws into one another. And if we're not doing it daily, we're not going to be able to do it when crisis hits. We need to be a community that is entrenched, that is deeply woven in God's word and wants to use God's word as a lens through which we understand and interpret our world so that as different things come across our road, we actually can make sense of it. We don't have the answer for everything, but we can make sense of it. And lastly, we need to encourage one another to have a resolve about the mission of God, that we will continue moving forward, that we will take this message to the ends of the earth. And so may our response be informed by God's word and may our resolve be to be undeterred in the mission that we have each received. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful once again for your word, once again for the message of the gospel of grace. And especially this morning as we came across this text that it almost honestly feels like it fits in between two scenes or two big stories. Father, we want to be encouraged to know that in every part, in every passage, in every verse of the Bible, you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I do pray that we would dwell richly in this word, that we would allow not just so that we read the Bible, but that the Bible reads us. Father, we have to confess that at best we struggle with this. Uh, we feel often that we fail and that we're not worthy. However, we know that even in our failings, even in falling short, this does not stop the mission of God. And so I pray this morning that we would be encouraged rather than feeling that we've got to do better and just be better, but rather know that you will take your mission forward and we can to be a part of this. And so rather than through fear, I pray that through your goodness, we would be led to repentance and faith. May we be a community that draws into one another comforts one another and loves one another. May we even be a community that gives grace to one another when we don't do it perfectly as we look to the one who gives grace perfectly. 
In your name we pray. Amen.